Ali Latifi loves his country. This country, it's so beautiful. There's desert area, there's lakes and valleys and mountains. If you want to go see the snow, you just get in the car and you drive to Bamiyan. And if you want to be in the warmer weather, you can just drive to Qandar. And when you want to see these beautiful green pastures and valleys, you can just go to Qanar or Nuristan. Ali is a journalist who was born in Afghanistan. And it's not just the scenery of the country that he loves. It's the people, too. Just the most amazing, unbelievable, most incredible people. But after decades of war and violence, he knows it's not perfect. Not yet. Imagine when peace comes. That's the day we're waiting for. That's the day we're hoping for. As the United States ends its 20-year occupation, we wanted to know if Ali and the people of Afghanistan are getting closer to having their hopes realized, or if true peace is still a long way off. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Hey. Hey, Ali. How are you? Pretty good. You and I go way back. Yeah, yeah. We were colleagues together on the Al Jazeera English web desk in Doha. Yeah. And then I moved back to Kabul in 2013. So I've essentially been living here pretty much ever since. I was born here, but we left when I was little during the Soviet occupation. Hali's family left Afghanistan in the 1980s during the Soviet occupation. And he returned to Afghanistan during the American one. In fact, Ali remembers when the U.S. occupation started 20 years ago. He was actually living in the U.S. then. I was 18 at the time. And I remember it was kind of unbelievable because in our house, we talked about Afghanistan all the time. But it was rarely ever on television or the radio. If somehow a relative knew that they would be talking about Afghanistan on, say, TV or whatever, like they would call each other and say, watch this news or or listen to this radio today because they're going to talk about it. Mm. And then all of a sudden... On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime. On my orders... The United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. It was everywhere. And like CNN had these maps and these projections. Explosions, anti-aircraft fire has uh, been heard, has been seen in Kabul, the uh, capital of Afghanistan. The operation has in fact begun. You know, like, where is Kabul? What is Tora Bora? Eastern Alliance fighters beckon towards a small hole in the hillside, deep in the Tora Bora range. But then they were like, okay, the U.S. is going to go with 40 countries, and they've picked Hamid Karzai as the leader, and they're standing beside him, and they're taking pictures with him. Hamid Karzai, a 44-year-old Pashtun leader, was elected to head the interim cabinet. He's being introduced to the media and he's giving all these interviews. If we deliver to the Afghan people what we promised, this will be a great day. If we don't deliver, 
this will go into oblivion. I was in California in 2001. I was a refugee. My family were refugees. Ali was just 18 and a freshman at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I will not lie. I was part of one of those naive people that thought, you know, the country's going to be rebuilt. It was this really delusional idea. But still, he was hopeful. And he says even his friends in Kabul during the initial bombings had some hope at that time. And um, they all said, we thought the Taliban would be driven out. We remember watching the B-52s. We remember hearing the sounds of it and just how there was something in the air. All of Ali's family had fled Afghanistan, and many of them were in Pakistan, watching from there. Which is also where Al Jazeera's Osama bin Javed was working as a journalist. He's since become Al Jazeera's Taliban correspondent, amongst other things. So I remember interacting with some of them, with even some of their recruits who were hiring people back on the border regions in in Pakistan back in the day. The Taliban was hiring people to go back to Afghanistan to fight the U.S. The Taliban used to be your average madrasa-going religious cleric. They would go up in the ranks as they would become hardened fighters. So they were very simple people with, you know, a narrow focus on establishing a an, a, a state for them where they could practice their religion freely and the laws of the land would be according to what their wishes were. And from there, the fight between the Taliban, the U.S.-led NATO alliance with more than 40 countries, and the Afghan government began. The U.S. strike has, in fact, begun, and this picture that we're now seeing, by the way, is courtesy of Al Jazeera Television, a cable news network based in Qatar. We do have our correspondent, Kamal Haider. He's on the telephone right now from uh, somewhere in Afghanistan. Are you there, Kamal? Yes, uh, Wolf, I'm here. In fact, just uh, two, three minutes ago, I got a call from my uh, men in uh, Kandahar City and our office there. They said that they heard very loud explosions. For years, the fight between the U.S.-led effort and the Taliban went back and forth. Gains, losses, and deaths. Taliban deaths, U.S. soldier and contractor deaths, but mostly civilian deaths. The civilian death toll has risen from more than 1,500 dead in 2007 to more than 2,700 dead in 2010. It was 10 years of war at this point, and no one knew when it would end. It had already been dubbed a forever war by the press. And all Hali wanted was to go home, to Afghanistan. So the first time that he came back was in 2011. And it was while I was living in Doha. And it was the result of visa mishap. And I remember they said to me, you can go anywhere in the world. And other people were going to Paris. They were going to London. I was like, I'm going to Kabul. (laughs) And (laughs) I hid it from my parents. And... I just showed up. I literally just showed up. I'm not going to lie. Like, (laughs) I was so scared. I was like, I was acting normal, but inside I was scared. Like, I remember at one point we were walking on the streets and I had a can of Pepsi in my hand. But I had this weird thing in my head. If you throw the Pepsi in the trash can, it might explode. And I remember thinking to myself, don't speak too much because what if they realize... You weren't raised here. Like all these stupid paranoias. 
So eventually your parents found out. What did they say? They found out because that first week I was here, there was a bombing. Imagine, like, this is my first time experiencing it. It was far from where I was staying, mm-hmm. but you could still hear, like, explosions. And you could even hear some gunfire. And when I made it through that, for whatever reason, I called my dad. And I, my dad was like, why are you calling from an Afghanistan number? And I was like, guess what, Baba? I'm in Kabul. <laughs> um, and it's funny because he didn't tell my mom until I got back. And she was like, you're so dumb. You should have told us. We would have told the family and like, you could have stayed in one of their houses. But on that very first trip, I started to make friends who took me to their house, who treated me like a guest the way my family always did when guests came or the way I was raised to believe you should if you are Avran. And then from then on, literally every two, three months, I would come back here. So at the height of the war, there were more servicemen and women from the U.S., but also from other NATO countries, Germany, the U.K., Turkey, to name just a few, and then contractors. What do you remember about what it looked like? Did you see these people in the streets of Kabul? Yeah, you definitely see like the contractors. Some of them would go in the streets. Most of them would go to more expensive grocery stores. There were specific types of restaurants. The soldiers, there were times when I would go to certain provinces and you would see some of them. By the time I came, there weren't that many on the streets of Kabul. But when their convoys, Humvees, like unbelievably armored Humvees would be on the streets. If you know anything about Kabul, is it's a very overcrowded city and the traffic is insane and it's a city of roundabouts, which makes the traffic even worse. So you would see these convoys just in random residential neighborhoods and you would, in your mind, you'd be like, why are they here? In the middle of the day, they're holding up traffic. And so many times they would come under attack and because they were so armored, the people inside would rarely ever get killed or injured. But obviously the people on the street, the ones going to the store, the ones going to school, the ones going to work, they would be the ones that would pay the price. What did Afghans think of the U.S. presence and the war by the time you got there? There was a very specific class of people that were very supportive of it. But these were people who had benefited from it in one way or another. They were working in the media, they were working for NGOs, they were working for embassies, they were working for the military or the government. But for the average person, at that point, there was already skepticism of what have they really accomplished? What are they really doing here? There were night raids, there were drone strikes, there were airstrikes. I remember when Robert Bales, that U.S. soldier, went to a village in Kandar and killed more than a dozen civilians. Women, children, men. He just went house to house killing people. And so there was a lot of not just resentment, but also just this question of if they're here, what are they doing here? At the time, Hamid Karzai was still the president. Mm-hmm. What were the goals of the Afghan government then? They talked a lot about democracy. They talked a lot about women's rights, human rights, trying to strengthen the economy. And then they talked about the war on terror, eliminating terror and things like that. And how were they received by the general public? Because it had already been 10 years in, there was a lot of 
questioning of what has really been done. Why are there still unpaved roads in central Kabul? Why do we still not have proper 24-hour electricity? Why are there still suicide bombings? What was the Taliban's goal at that point? What did they want? They keep saying they want the end of what they see as an occupation and that they want occupiers and the government that they see as collaborating with an occupation out and they want to come back to power. And that's been the same line all this time. And remember Al Jazeera's Usama bin Javed, who's been covering the Taliban for the network. He was in Doha when the Taliban first opened an office for diplomacy there in 2013. Talking to the Taliban has never been easy. In the last few years, the Taliban established an office in Qatar, then they shut down that office. And they did not want to be seen in public, they did not want to communicate, but they kept their presence in Doha. And he says this process of making agreements didn't happen overnight. Every once in a while, a year or two years, you would get a message back from them. Finally, last year, they signed a deal between the Taliban and the U.S. government, which later on led to an agreement under which the Taliban and the Afghan government, after two decades, were able to sit face to face. After the agreement between them and the U.S. government, the Taliban became more open. They uh, were more vocal and they were easier to get to. But again, uh, they did not want people to figure out where they were. I think I'm one of the very few people in Doha who knows where their compound is. So we asked Osama what message the Taliban is putting out. They're not the Taliban that I remember from 20 years ago. They're very shrewd statesmen in their statements. Whenever they're speaking on the record, they choose their words carefully and at times uh, give you the notion that they are already running Afghanistan, not the other way around. But it's hard to decipher what the Taliban is doing, even for Osama. It's hard to read between their words and their actions. When you speak to the political wing of the Taliban, they're very clear. They say that violence is not the solution. Even if we go to war at a certain time, we will have to come back to the table and negotiations are the way forward. That is coming from the Taliban. Now, actions do not really reflect their words. So now, if you look at the map of Afghanistan, you look at the 150 plus districts that the Taliban control from the east to the west, from the north to the south, from Central Asia to Pakistan, from Iran to China. It is extraordinary the way that the Taliban have consolidated their power. It, it does not mean that they truly control all of these districts. There is a very famous saying that the government controls the day and the Taliban controls the night. And I asked when I met one of their leaders in an informal setting, we were sipping tea and after they signed this agreement with the United States, and, they, and I said, is it still the case? Do you control the night and the government controls the day? And he's laughed and he said, now we control the day and the night. So now, what does the Taliban want to do with this control? When it comes to women's education, uh, having girls' schools, the Taliban say that there are girls' schools which are operating in their areas of influence. All they want is the segregation of girls and boys, but education can continue. They say they will allow women to work as per the rules of Islam. And again, it is open to interpretation. There is a lot 
which is vague and quite scary for the women of Afghanistan as you speak to not just the parliamentarians but the journalists and civil society activists in Afghanistan who will tell you that it is they are afraid that the Taliban are making all of these promises which we want to hear but it might not be the case once they come to power and there will be no mechanism or check in place to counter it so i asked ali where this leaves afghanistan U.S. President Joe Biden now says the U.S. will be out of Afghanistan as early as August. The end of the U.S. presence has arrived. Just last week, the U.S. left Bagram Air Base, which is one of the most important U.S. air bases in Afghanistan. So basically, when the U.S. left, they just it was reported that they just left in the middle of the night and there was no sort of um, handover ceremony to whoever would be their Afghan counterparts that would be taking over. And because they just literally left without giving advanced word, people just went on the base and they took what they could. And if you um, look at the the footage and the, and the pictures that are being sent now, it's just, it's just scraps that was just random things that were being left there. There were these memes online. It was the onion headline from, 10 years ago or so, it said something like the U.S. leaves in the middle of the night. But then people made a meme out of it and screenshotted that headline with the actual AP headline saying exactly that. Again, it was about them leaving under the cover of the night. The fact is that all of these U.S. presidents have been wanting out of Afghanistan for a long time. Barack Obama wanted out and he wasn't able to get out. That was a huge deal. Trump made this agreement with the Taliban and he was hoping that, you know, he could get out too, but that didn't happen either. And it was left up to Joe Biden and he made it clear that he's going to stick by his word and Biden's decision over the last year and a half or so is that the Taliban have been able to up their game. The Afghan government is now led by President Ashraf Ghani and he recently replaced the head of the armed forces and the Afghan Department of Defense. And yet we're still hearing reports of Afghan soldiers fleeing across the border to Tajikistan. So it doesn't sound like they are in a position of strength. The new Minister of Defense announced is supporting publicly the sort of public uprising forces, which is basically arming local people in their own areas to join and fight alongside the security forces to defend their areas. But right now that comfort isn't there for a lot of people. They fear a return to civil war. They fear a return to Taliban rule. And and I think a lot of people just feel directionless. They don't know what's going to happen. But Ali, almost despite himself, doesn't seem to be able to give up on hope. And among his hopes is that he'll have the opportunity to tell other stories about Afghanistan. Stories that aren't about the war. Why have you decided to stay? I mean, for one, it's my country. I was born here. And I also stay because there are incredible people here. There are incredible stories here. There's, you know amazing young female social media influencers, young girls that grew up here where they have 80, 90,000 followers or young male MMA fighters. And they're telling me they don't actually make much money off of it. 
but they still pursue it because to them that pursuit of greatness, that pursuit of excellence means so much. This country, it's so beautiful. What do you think about the end of the U.S. presence in just about two months? When you look back, (laughs) what do you make of this past 20 years? I think it was tragic. A tragic misuse of vast amounts of money. So much of it got wasted, stolen in corruption. Tragic lack of direction of actually knowing what you want to achieve in a country. And I think it's tragic in that it robbed people of a sense of hope that things could get better and, and, and could change in a way that they've never happened before. I mean, there obviously are a lot of advancements. There are a lot of changes. There are a lot of rights that people have regained or gained and things like that. That's not taking that away at all. But overall, what should have happened what people had hoped would happen, what people had envisioned would happen, did not happen. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, Odina Kispe, Nagin Eliari, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. You can hear Osama bin Javed's interviews with the Taliban spokesman and an interview with the chairman of Afghanistan's High Council for National Reconciliation online. We'll post a link on our Twitter feed at AJ the Take. We'll be back on Wednesday. Wednesday.